You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. It's Trudy Rodriguez, and I'm the interim pastor right now here at New City. And I am so glad that you are here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to continue today our series on the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, and we're getting close to the end. So today we're going to finish chapter 4, and then in the coming weeks we're going to dive into chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please open it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 13 through 18 <clears throat> this morning. Um, Let me go ahead and uh, and pray for us before we we dive into the Word of God. Dear Jesus, we thank you this morning for uh, your Word. Thank you for the access we have to it. And and Lord, I pray that today, as we read it together, examine it together, uh, you would speak to us through your Spirit. And I pray that you would bring comfort that you would bring uh, peace and joy, uh, and also you would confront us and change us and sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. I pray that we would be transformed to be a blessing to other people, people around us in this community, and ultimately to bring glory to your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So um, before I read the passage, I want to give you some context in Today and the next uh, couple of Sundays, we're going to be, uh, I'm sorry, today and the next couple of uh, chapters, or the next chapter, we're going to be focusing on, on the last things, on the second coming of Jesus. And I know that there is a lot to unpack or to talk about when it comes to uh, what, what's known in theology as eschatology, uh, the, the study of the last things. So today we are not going to talk about everything when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, that's going to be for chapter 5. But today we're going to focus specifically on what the text brings to us, which is the resurrection of, G- uh, of the dead and uh, the second coming of Jesus. But we're not going to talk about necessarily on when it's going to happen and the different positions of that. That's going to be for chapter 5. Yet, with this, I need to give you some context on why is it that Paul is, is talking about this to this specific church. So first of all, the purpose of uh, Paul bringing this up is to bring hope to the church and encouragement. Um, keep in mind that this is a first century church, and if you remember, the church in the first century was a persecuted church. Many Christians were killed and tortured. Uh, People were very familiar with death. So uh, for all the kids here, we're going to mention the word death several times. Um, Death uh, back then in the first century was uh, a very public uh, thing. It It was wide in the open. You knew when somebody died. People used to die on the streets and under houses. Um... You noticed in the community who was dying because the mourning and the rituals that came with somebody dying was, were very big. Um, and that's going to be a little starking for us because we are not used to dealing with death in our society so much. In Western countries, 
death frequently happens at a hospital or, a, or, or at a healthcare facility. So the act of dying or dying is frequently kept hidden from us. It's not public for us to see. But that was not the case in the first century. That was something that was very common. And <clears throat> people had a lot of different views on what, what, what happened when you died, why did people die, all of those things. And, and just like today, there were many philosophies and views about the afterlife, right? So for instance, there were people who, who thought that the way people died and even the rituals after people died uh, impacted the afterlife or had something to do with the afterlife. Uh, even the specific ways to mourn and, and the rituals that happened with, wh when people were being uh, remembered uh, said a lot about the family and the status of the family. Uh, uh, it even says something about the religion or the town they lived in. Uh, and people had all kinds of beliefs about how to deal with the topic of death and dead people. Uh, there were some people back then that you used to embalm uh, their, their loved ones to preserve their bodies for the next life. Some people uh, burned them or cremate them. Some people used to bury them. And there was all kinds of different things in between. Um, the act of mourning was something that was also very important. Uh, people would mourn their dead in extravagant ways sometimes. And this is something that it's interesting because this is not uncommon even now. So I was, while I was studying for this, I realized that this still happens in some parts of other countries. In, for instance, in Mexico, uh, I didn't know this, but there are people who you can hire for them to come and cry for your loved one, and you can pay for them. And that's just because they want to make sure that people are remembered or, or are, are being sent off well. So those kinds of things were happening even more back in the first century. Uh, there was ways of mourning that included like self-harming and even spending enormous amount of money uh, just to say goodbye to people. And the churches in the midst of all, of all this, the first churches were starting to come up in the midst of all of these different kinds of beliefs. And Christians had also several questions and some fears about why people died and uh, what happened after people died. Remember, <clears throat> these Christians did not have the entire Bible as we do today. So they basically depended on what we know as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible or, and the teachings of the apostles. So Paul was spending a lot of time just correcting and, and teaching people about different topics. And today he addresses the topic of the Christian who died before Jesus came. So this is the context of what's happening in the church of Thessalonica as Paul is writing this. So let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. <clears throat> and it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do <clears throat> who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I just want to make sure I repeat this. We're not going to talk about everything when it comes to Christians' beliefs in the last things. We're going we're gonna to talk about three specific things, and these are three specific things that most Christians agree on. Number one is that Jesus is coming back a second time, and that when Jesus comes back, he will gather his people, both the dead and also the ones that are alive, and number three, that after that, we will be with him forever. And before I, I, I start the sermon, um, I want to just read you our statement of faith on those things. You can find this on our bylaws or on our website. This is New City Fellowship's statement of faith <clears throat> about the consummation or the last things. It says, we believe that Jesus will return to earth to judge all people and to rule and reign with his saints forever. All people will be resurrected to give account of their lives before God. The believer in Christ will be resurrected to everlasting blessedness and joy in the presence of God. The unbeliever will be resurrected to judgment and everlasting conscious punishment. This is what we believe as a church. So let me go ahead and take it step by step. Bear with me. There's going to be several elements of, of uh, questions and things that I've commonly received uh, from, from Christians. Uh, the first thing I want to say is it is 100% certain that Jesus is coming back for us. This is the first thing that Paul brings and, and, and the main um, event that Paul uses to anchor this hope that he wants to give us. When we think of the last things, we need to remember that just as Jesus came the first time, he will come back again. The same way, the same Jesus that came to die on the cross for us will one day come back to take us home with him in glory. And this is important because, remember, this, this text intends for us to have hope. And the first piece of hope is that Jesus is coming back for us. That same Jesus who began the work of salvation in us will also finish salvation. Remember that in, in biblical terms, salvation is not a one-time event. It's a process. In fact, we see in the Bible that salvation is, is talked about as something that happened in the past. We were saved. Uh, something that happens in the present. We are being saved. And something that happens in the future, we will be saved. Uh, other words that the Bible used to describe our salvation is we were justified. We were elected. We were chosen. We are being sanctified. And we will be glorified. 
those are part of what we call salvation. And this reminds us of the same thing, that Jesus, the one who came, will one day come back and finish our salvation by taking us home and glorifying us. That is important to remember. Because this brings us hope. And you can be 100% sure if you're a Christian that this is not just a, a, an idea. This is not just a theory. Jesus, in fact, will come back. And this is not even debatable amongst different traditions. Everybody believes that Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back and how he comes back and who he comes back for, those are different things. But everybody believes that Jesus is coming back for, for, for sure. And I want to make sure we understand this and we remember this. Jesus is coming back for us. And this is not something that Paul came up with. In fact, Jesus himself said it. In John 14, he was saying goodbye to his disciples and he said, in uh, John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. When Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples, I am going to come back for you. And then, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, it's the first thing that, that, that the disciples hear from somebody else after Jesus ascends to heaven. So, in, in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You guys remember those. If you've been a Christian, you remember that, that verse. It's uh, uh, 1, 8 of chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's Jesus talking to his disciples. And then verse 9 says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out their sight, out of their sight. And verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the moment Jesus left, that was the moment that the angels reminded the disciples, he's coming back. And there's at least a hundred mentions of Jesus' return in the entire New Testament. Let me just read a few of them for, to you. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Then the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what, will, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then Revelation, again, the Apostle John's talking in, in chapter 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So, I don't know how you feel about this, but this says so much about who Jesus is. 
Think about this. He already came and died for us on the cross. He already forgave us of our sins. He already sent His Holy Spirit to help us. And He's still coming back again to take us home. This tells me how much God loves us. This tells me that the salvation that God promised to us from beginning to end is a work that it's entirely God's work. And this is so hopeful. This gives us so much hope and courage for this life. In fact, Paul writes to Titus that this is our blessed hope. Titus 2, verses 11 and 13, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, talking about the first coming, bringing salvation for all people, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is... A reminder that should bring us hope and joy. Paul has been threading this topic throughout the letter. In fact, this is something that he has been mentioning in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And he will culminate by talking in depth about it in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that he mentions to wait for his son from heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19 he says that the Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus is coming. And in chapter 3, he says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And now he brings up again that Jesus is coming back. So the first thing that Paul wants for us to understand is that Jesus is coming back. And whether we are alive or dead, he will take us with him. And this is something we need to re- rejoice on. And the reality, unfortunately, is that we don't think about these things often. We actually get excited about things that probably will never fulfill us the way that this will be. And this is, this is just something that I do. I get excited about other things. I look forward to other things that are not important. And this event that is amazing, I easily forget. And the reality is that there's some people who think, I don't know when that's going to happen. You know, the, the Bible doesn't really clarify that for us. And, and we, if you're like me and you're a, a, a skeptic by nature, you're like, maybe that will happen to my kids or my kids' kids. And, you know, everybody says that it was going to happen and it never happened. But truth be told, we don't know. It could be today. It could be. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week or or next month. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, and we need to keep that in mind, but not as something that we need to fear, rather as something that brings us hope. Think of this. The Jesus that came to save you is coming back for you. You will see him on that day. And it will be mind-blowing. It will be great and awesome Paul's description here is that he will come with a cry of command, with his angels, with trumpets. There's an army coming with him. And if you think that he's going to come back in the same way he came the first time, you're wrong. The first time, Jesus came as a poor, little, 
a helpless baby in an insignificant place. But the second time he comes, just let me read the description of John in Revelation 19. And if you've never read this, you need to read this. This is the description of how John saw Jesus coming back the second time. In Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in, and in, righteousness, he, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Listen to this. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a rope dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white pure were following on him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I, I, don't, know, I don't even know how to ima- imagine this. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be just jaw-dropping. And he's coming back for us because he loves us. He's not coming back to make war on us. And for us, the Christians, it's not going to be scary. It's going to be amazing. Because we are his beloved children. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand that Jesus is, in fact, coming back for us. And it gets even better. Paul begins to describe the details on on how this is going to happen. And the the thing that Paul addresses is that Jesus will gather his people, and the ones that are dead, the Christians who are dead, will be the first ones that come back to life or resurrect. So let me just make a a clarification here. The reason why Paul is bringing this up is because the people in Thessalonica were very afraid that the, resurrec- that the resurrection of the dead were, was not a real thing. In fact, this is a, this is a Greek issue. The, the, the Greeks were very much into material and spiritual. And once you finished living your material life, that was the end of it, and that doesn't, didn't count anymore. Now it was, it was time for, for you to live your spiritual life or moved on to an afterlife in the spirit. So they believed that the material body was just going to decay and it didn't really matter. And in fact, this was a problem that Paul encountered several times. Thessalonica was, and actually still is, a city in the north uh, of Greece. And the Greeks thought that the idea of the resurrection of the dead was ridiculous. And in fact, they thought it was ignorant. If you read Acts chapter 17, you will see how Paul plants the church in Thessalonica. And you can, you can read it whenever you have time. But Paul goes to Thessalonica, preaches the gospel. He flees from Thessalonica as it was common. He was persecuted there. So he moves on and he goes to Berea. He preaches the gospel in Berea and the people in Berea persecute him. In fact, there were the people from Thessalonica chased them to Berea and chased them out of Berea. He fled Berea, and then Paul ends up in Athens, the capital 
of Greece. And Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17 in the Areopagus or, Mar or the Mars Hill. And he starts talking with the Greeks. The, the, this was the capital of, of, of the ancient world. This was the center of the, 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 the wise and, and the, the people who were like into philosophy and all those things. And he starts preaching to them. And when the moment Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, he loses everybody. In fact, he says, it says that uh, when they heard him talk about the resurrection of the dead, they mocked him. If you read Acts chapter 17, you will see that the Athenians had, uh, or uh, Paul had the Athenians' attention the entire time until he got to the resurrection of the dead. That's when they mocked him. And some of them believed. But we don't know if there was a church in Athens. We don't have record of that. But the reality is that there was this thing that, they, uh, that the Greek had against the resurrection. In fact, Paul talks about the resurrection and builds a case for the resurrection in 1 Corinthians at the end of the book. Because this was something that was ridiculed back in those days. So the people in Thessalonica were fearful of whether this concept was true and whether the, the coming of Jesus was going to exclude the people who died because there was no way they were going to come back to life because that was a ridiculous idea. So Paul addresses this issue and basically clarifies in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, the people who are dead. And he says, the first ones to rise up to meet Jesus when Jesus comes back will be the Christians who are dead. They will come back to life and they will get a new body and they will be with Jesus. And this is something that brought hope to the people in Thessalonica. Because they were mourning their dead as if they were never going to see them again. But Paul addresses that and gives them hope and saying, no, 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 no. God can do whatever he wants, even with dead people. Some of them thought that if people were cremated, there was no way they were going to resurrect. In fact, today, there are still Christian cults that tell you that you cannot cremate your loved ones because that will impede their resurrection. As if God has never brought life out of dust, though. There is nothing that will impede God from resurrecting anybody. Even if, we're, if you were chopped into pieces and boiled or whatever you want to think, God will bring you back in a second and he will resurrect you. Before I continue, I just want to uh, uh, just address one question. And some of, some of these people were also under the belief that what happens to Christians when they die? Because we know that the Bible teaches that we, there, there is not such a thing as like this heaven where we're going to be forever, like this ethereal place that we will exist in forever. The Bible doesn't really teach that. The Bible teaches that God will renew all things. He will make a new heaven and a new earth and that we will actually spend eternity with him in a place where we will have a body, an actual body, 
So the question was like, if you died before Jesus comes back and you're resurrected, what's happening? Where are you in that meantime? And there's some debate in this. Um, and, and some confusion, people think that because the Bible uses the word sleep, it means that some Christians go into this uh, state of rest that people call the intermediate state. Some people call it uh, Abraham's bosom. And, and there's many confu uh, confusion about this. Um, but the reality is that if we go to what Jesus said and, and some of the teachings of the New Testament, we will see that Jesus was very clear, specifically with the thief on the cross, that he was going to be with him that day. Remember that? They were hanging, and the guy said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And what, what did Jesus say? Well, you're going to go to sleep, and then on the judgment day, you're going to come back, and then we'll see each other again? No. He said, surely, surely, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. So what happens to the Christian when they die and Jesus has not come back yet? They go with Jesus. They go into the presence of the Lord. And then Paul states the same in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So some, this, this were some of the questions that people were asking back then, and people are still asking this day. There is no intermediate state there's no purgatory. There's no in-between. When you die, you go straight into the presence of God, and you are with Him until everything is renewed, and then we will be ushered into a new heaven and a new, and a new earth. The point is, the Christians who are dead will resurrect first, and then they will be given a new body. And this is another question that people have. How are we going to spend eternity? And I have uh, some friends that thought, and I thought too, that we were just going to be flying in our diapers with little wings and harps just in the presence of God in the clouds, and it was going to be just boring because all we were going to do was say, holy, 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 holy for eternity, right? So that's pretty appealing. Um, <laughs> the reality is that this is not what the Bible teaches. Paul actually spends a lot of time explaining to us what is it that we're going to receive as a new body as Christians. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he actually says, If someone asks, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This was an actual question, the same question you and I have. This was the question that the Corinthian church had. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And then Paul is not very nice at answering, and he actually calls us foolish. But then he actually explains to us. And let me read this. Verses 42 to 50 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. He's talking about a seed. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth. A man of dust, the second man is from heaven. 
as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As it is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and bones, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul basically is saying that the new body we'll get is like the one that Jesus got, the last Adam. The, the, instead of an earthly body, we will have a, a, a heavenly body. Instead of having a perishable body, we will have an imperishable body. Instead of having a, a, a weak body, we will have a powerful body. So in short, the kind of body that we will inherit in the resurrection is a body just like Jesus's. And if you remember Jesus's body, you will remember that people were able to see and recognize him. Remember? People noticed that he was Jesus. People touched Jesus. In fact, he asked Thomas to put his hands in his, in, 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 in his um, wounds. In, in John chapter 20, Jesus appears to his disciples in different moments. And he, it's funny because I, John, actually, John, 20, uh, John 20 actually says that the doors were locked and Jesus appeared to them. Jesus ate with them. Jesus talked with them. Jesus disappeared from them in the, in, the, in the road of Emmaus and appeared to them. So this is a description, sort of, of the kind of body that we will receive. It's a body that's a human body, or looks like a human body and feels like a human body, but it does all what the heavenly bodies will do. And to be honest, that's kind of cool. That's the body that you will get once you resurrect. And then the question is, okay, the, the, the Christians who are dead will rise up, and then Paul goes on to say, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, step number two, Jesus comes back, the dead will rise up, they will be transformed, they will get their new body, and those who are alive will meet Jesus in the air. And that is going to be amazing. So if you're alive when Jesus comes back, you will fly. I'm not kidding. That's what the Bible says. The, the word that the Bible uses is that we'll be taken. In fact, in Matthew 24, God says, Then we'll appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And it says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four wings from one end of heaven to the other. Angels are going to come and grab us. And then the same thing that happened to the, to the resurrected will happen to us. We will be transformed into our new bodies to be ready for eternity. And Paul actually addresses this same thing in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I told you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So what I'm telling all of us is that we need to remember all these things. We seldomly think of the, of the coming back of Jesus, and we think that this is all there is. 
We think that this body that we have right now and these issues that we're dealing with right now, that's all there is, but it's not. There's so much more for us that will come, for sure. And it's going to be amazing. We're going to be changed. We're going to get a new amazing body, a perfect body to be with Jesus forever. Because he loves us so much. And this is the part that will give us, will give us the, the most hope. Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Seeing Jesus is going to be amazing. Getting a new body is going to be amazing. Flying up to the, to the sky with him is going to be amazing. Being resurrected is going to be amazing. All of those things, seeing him in a white horse, coming down with his angels is going to be amazing. But the most amazing part of this entire thing is that we will be with Jesus forever. What else is better than him forever? What else is better than looking into the eyes of love for the first time in our lives? Not looking at someone who loves, but looking at love itself in front of you, knowing you perfectly, knowing everything you've done, and still looking at you with love and saying, I'm finally here with you. That's the day when we meet Jesus, and it will be forever and we will have a, a perfect body. You will never get sick again. You will never get hurt again. Nobody's going to betray you again. There's no more pain, no more death, no more conflict, no more sin, no tears. That is, that is our promise. That is what Jesus provides for us freely. What is better than that? Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Paul is addressing a church that's in conflict, who's losing people left and right because of persecution and all kinds of other things. And he's saying, it's okay to mourn. But remember, there is hope. We can mourn, we can suffer, we can cry, we can lament, we can be honest about our pain. But as Christians, we grieve and we suffer differently. We do it remembering our blessed hope. Jesus is coming back. He's going to give us a new body. Our resurrection will bring us joy. And what Paul wants us to do is that we grieve, but we grieve with hope. And that we encourage each other with this. This theology of one another that we talked about, this for otherness that we talked about, comes up again in verse 18. 
Paul closes this section by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So it's not just for you to understand this. It's also for you to bring that hope to others, specifically the ones here within the church. So if you're a believer, I just want to say, maybe some of us have lost a loved one. Maybe some of us have uh, recently lost somebody that was special for us, and we need to hear of the hope of the resurrection and the new life. We need to hear that Jesus is there for us. You need to hear that Jesus is coming back to bring us to home, to his home that will be now ours, and we'll be with him forever. And you need also to hear that it's okay to be sad and to cry, and to pretend, and not to pretend that you're strong, but rather go to Jesus and find hope in Jesus, because he is our hope. Maybe some of us are just exhausted of so much pain and conflict in our country, in our nation, in, our, in the world, in our families, and even in our church. And we just need to be reminded that this is not all there is. We just need to be reminded that something amazing is coming for us. That one day we will be in the perfect place with the perfect God and everything will be made right the reality is that we need to be constantly reminded of this we constantly hear wars shootings more sicknesses there's a new one coming if COVID taught us something is that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but we know that Jesus is coming back and that things are getting better for us, will be better for us. Whatever you're going through, there is hope for us today. And Jesus is not only interested in our joy in the future, he's not saying this so that we can just close our eyes and live in the future. He is telling us so that our future informs our, our today and that will change us. So we can be, have hope and be encouraged today. This is not for you to fear. This is not for you to feel ashamed. And I say this because the, I grew up in a Christian tradition that utilized the, the second coming of Jesus as a way to inflict fear in people. I don't know if that was you. I grew up, and I, was, I remember I was 11 or 12, and my parents showed me a, a movie called, like, A Thief in the Night, and I was scared to death. I think I accepted Jesus that night, like, 20 times. <laughs> and the movie showed the great tribulation and how people were being beheaded and I was I never thought this was supposed to be hopeful for a Christian but once I understand the gospel once you understand that you are a sinful sinner who probably deserves to be left behind like the serious 
You are not going to be left behind because it's not about you and it's not about how good you are. Because being a Christian is not about you getting your act together and loving Jesus with all your heart on your own strength. This is about a God who loves you, who came, who is helping you, and will be coming back for you, and he will carry you like a little baby in a stroller until you get home, and he will never take his hands off of you. And I can't wait to see this Jesus and meet him. And that's our hope as Christians. And if you're here and you're not a believer, this is available for you today. I know this is hard to believe. I know it requires faith. I know you might have a lot of objections. But let me tell you, you don't want to find out that this was true when it's too late. Because this is free. This is for you too. You don't have to fully understand it. In fact, I am a pastor. I don't fully understand it. And the Christian who tells you, yeah, I get it, probably don't. This is about understanding how weak you are, how awful you are, how much of a sinner you are, and how much Jesus is going to help us. And this is the gospel. This is the great news of Jesus coming and dying for us because we can't save ourselves. Christianity is not for good people. Christianity is not a bunch of good people getting together and worshiping a good God. No. Christianity is about a good God who saves bad people, sinners like you and I, who deserve the worst, but he gives us the best. And the invitation for you, if you're not a believer, still stands today. It's never too late. You can come at any time and give your life to Jesus. I would love to help you with that. And anyone who's a Christian here would also love to do that. But I want to make sure you know Jesus is coming back. And he will give us a better life than anything we can imagine. And if you want it, you can have it. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we thank you because you are coming back and because this brings us hope, because this makes us so happy to finally see you, to finally meet our King of Kings, the one who died for us, our loved Savior. Lord, we cry out, come back. We cry out, come and do everything right. Make everything right. Come, Lord Jesus, we need you. And I pray right now for any of us who are dealing with sadness and anxiety and, and difficulties and mourning and pain. I pray for you to uh, just inflict hope in our lives through understanding, through the understanding of our future with you. Lord, I pray that these momentary afflictions will, would continue to create an increasing weight of glory, an increasing anticipation of our future with you. I pray that we would not only store these truths for ourselves, but encourage each other with these words. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray.